Well, in verse 12 going on, Jehoshaphat said to Elisha, The word of the Lord is with him. Or he said about him, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, he says to Jehoram. Go to Baal. Go to Asherah. You're looking for some help. And the king of Israel answered him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. So now he's fighting back with Elisha and he's saying, No, we're here because God brought us here and he messed us up. So what are you going to do with that? Elisha, verse 11, said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. It's tough stuff. But now, verse 15, bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Music game. The music of the minstrel was what Elisha asked for to help him dial down and to get into that place where he could focus on and listen to the Lord. What exactly does that mean for us? We're going to wait on that one too. That's a whole study in and of itself. We're going to be doing that a little bit later in July. But we'll talk about that and we'll spend some time just in worship. But don't miss that the music and the worship is incredibly important for someone who wants to hear from the Lord and rest under the Lord's hand. Verse 16. He said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing, a trivial thing in the sight of the Lord. And he will also give the Moabites into your hand. And by the way, God does this a lot. He will, especially in, in Old Testament times, he'll say, okay, I'm going to do this greater miracle, but I'm going to do a smaller miracle first so that you know I'm going to do the greater miracle. Let me give you a little proof ahead of time. Let me show you that I'm behind this, and when you see this, then you'll know I'm going to do that. And so going on, it says, you shall strike every fortified city, verse 19, and every choice city, and fell every good tree, and stop all the springs of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. So in other words, if you're going to go into this battle, commit. You take them apart. Verse 20, it happened in the morning about the time of offering the sacrifice, that behold, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Now all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned, and they stood on the border. They rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. What do you mean? Well, the dirt in Israel tends to be very reddish, especially in this region. And so if you have these fresh-cut trenches, inside the trenches would be red dirt, now red mud, and as the water is flowing through them and the early morning sun is coming up, it just looked like a valley of blood to the Moabites. Watch what they do. Verse 23, they said, This is blood! The kings have surely fought together, and they have slain one another. There, now therefore, Moab, to the spoil! But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites, so that they fled before them, and they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. Thus they destroyed the cities, and each one threw a stone on every piece of good land and filled it. So they stopped all the springs of water, felled all the good trees, until in, until in Kir Haraseth only they left its stones. However, the slingers went about it and struck it. 
When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Watch this. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. What is going on here? Israel fights this great war, goes up against Moab, wipes them out. They're just waylaying them right and left. They finally drive them all the way back to their capital city, which is that city, Kir Haraseth. And when they get them there, the king of Moab is in desperation. And so the last ditch effort to try and save his people, he decides, I need to sacrifice someone. And he grabs his firstborn son and burns him alive in the sight of Israel and Judah and his own people. And the fallout from this, the fallout is a great wrath against Israel. So what's going on? Well, you got to remember the Moabite god is a god named Shamash. And Shamash requires human sacrifice to be appeased and to be pleased and to act. At least that was the belief system of the Moabites. And so this detestable thing is done in the sight of all Israel, in the sight of all Judah. It was an awful act of human sacrifice that no Jew was supposed to or was allowed to see. God prescribed very clearly against it. You do not sacrifice human beings to me. I don't call for that. One human being in all history was sacrificed. And that was God's own son. But he never called for the sacrifice, the human sacrifice of anybody else. And so there came a great wrath, but the wrath came against Israel. Why is that? Well, there are three possibilities. Some people have said it's a godly wrath. It said the Lord was angry with him. Some commentators think that, that he charged the people to carry out this battle, but they took it too far, and it resulted in human sacrifice. So now God is pouring out his wrath on Israel. I don't think so. I don't think God is in the business of blaming someone else for someone else's sin. He's not blaming Israel for the sin of Misha, the king of Moab. So others have said, okay, well, is it a Moabite wrath? And that's very possible. The Moabites at this point could have been so surprised and so routed and so upset, and now they see the sacrifice of their prince, the king's son, who would be the next king. And so they could be like caged animals in a rage and, and very wrathful. And at this point, maybe Israel saw that and said, okay, we've got to get out of here because these people are now, they could care less if they live or die, and we're going to lose some blood if we don't get away. The other possibility is a Judean wrath. And that is that the people of Judah, who were fighting alongside the people of Israel, were so angry and incensed at what they saw that they got mad at their brothers Israel for drawing them into this battle at all. So which one is it? I don't know. Take your pick. The bottom line is, at this point, game over. The battle is won. And by the way, I mentioned this. Uh, it's an interesting and remarkable archaeological find. This entire battle was written about by King Misha. The find was uh, talked about in Biblical Archaeology Review in 1995. They found what is called the Misha Steel, or you may have heard of it, it's called the Moabite Stone. It was discovered originally in 1868, got passed around, got broken, but it got put back together. It was held in the Louvre for a long time, and then a French archaeologist began to study it and spent seven years on it and cracked the code and, and was able to translate it. And what they found was that King Misha himself either wrote or, or had written this, this Moabite stone. 
He talks about the victory that he had thanks to his god Shamash, which is a rewrite of history, which man is really good at doing, especially when he's in a place of failure. But this King Misha wrote this. What's amazing on this Moabite stone is there's a specific reference to the house of King David, which makes it the second find that we have that date all the way back to the 9th century the Tel Dan fragment is one, and now the Moabite stone is the other. We have two fragments that have mentioned specific archaeological mention of the house of David, which up until then, only the Bible gave us proof that David existed. And critics of the Bible said, there's no proof, there's no evidence that there was ever a King David. And yet the Moabite stone, written by an enemy of Israel, talks about the house of David. So that's very interesting. Now, 2 Kings chapter 4 begins a series of miracles involving Elisha. If you're taking a deep breath and saying, alright, we're going to do another chapter, yes, but stick with me. We can get through this. It's good stuff. I want to point out before we get here, though, that Elisha performs far more miracles than Elijah ever did. You will see the double portion at work. He does much more, more fantastic things. His ministry will span several kings and literally he will be ministering for about 50 years. Elijah didn't minister for half that long. So Elisha has a grand ministry and in the next four chapters from here through chapter 8, we'll just do chapter 4 tonight, we see constant miracle after miracle after miracle and they all happen during the reign of Jehoram in Israel. So here in chapter 4, we're going to see four miracles of provision, and the first one is a provision of oil. Verse 1. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves, which happened often in those days. Elisha said to her, and by the way, this is kind of what you, you can see happen. The pastor dies and his family now is broke and has, because he didn't provide for them. Um, I'm doing my best. I really am. But Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. It's the only thing of value that she even had. Probably that olive oil that was used for fire or for baking or whatever. Verse 3, then he said, Go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour in, out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and she shut the door behind her and her sons and they were bringing the vessels to her as she poured. She takes this one little jar of oil. They bring a jar, put it in front of her, she pours it and it fills up. So they move it and they bring another one. She pours. It fills up. They move it. They put another one. It continue, And it just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and filling up. And it says in verse 6, When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There's not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. And then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Oh, the provision of God. The provision of God. This is a miraculous provision of oil. The Bible, by the way, tells us more than 20 times that we have a responsibility that the Lord has a tender heart toward widows and orphans. That He cares greatly for them. Isaiah 1.17 says, Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. James 1.27 tells us that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
And so this miracle keeps right in stride with the father heart of God who does care for this widow and her sons. And not only does he care, but he pours out the oil and there's so much that once she sells it all, they have enough to live on for the rest of her life. The provision of God. That's what the Lord has done for me, by the way. Jesus paid my debt in full and he continues to feed and nurture and provide for me the rest of my life. He continues to provide for me the oil. And if you study the word, you know where I'm going with this. It speaks of something else. It speaks of the provision of His Holy Spirit. Oil in the Old Testament Scriptures always has that, that connection to it. And so when you see oil showing up, you think, well, how does this relate to the Holy Spirit? How? Because the Spirit is represented so often by oil in the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, I mentioned earlier that the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is evidence of the presence of the Lord in our lives. But this, however, is more a picture of the gifts of the Spirit as He pours into and onto our lives. The gifts that God gives us, spiritual gifts for ministry, and spiritual gifts for witnessing, and and power gifts that He actually pours out onto His people. And as with this miraculous flow of oil, He never gives too little. He also never gives too much. He only gives exactly what he deems necessary for ministry in the right person, at the right place, at the right time. Ministry to one another in the body of Christ and witnessing power in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, listening, listen to this, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. He's going to give the gifts that he determines. He's going to give them to the people he determines. And he's going to give them in the time he determines. It's as he wills. Not necessarily as I will. Now listen to me. If you're a Christian, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is guaranteed to you. In fact, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You gave your life to Jesus. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. And especially, Peter says, if you're not sure, get baptized. Because those of you who repent and are baptized will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 tells us. So the Spirit indwells us. Comes to be in us and to reside there. Guaranteed. But there is more. Because not only do you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you also have a biblical promise, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. More than simply His presence within you, He gives power gifts, just as He will. Now, even in the statement, power gifts, there's a tendency either to think, all right, cool, bring it on, I want more power, or there's the thought, okay, that sounds like the weird stuff. Don't know if I want to go there. So let's be biblical and understand It is His will and His desire to both fill us and to flow through us. To accomplish His will in ways, gang, that we couldn't do it. To do things beyond us. In the same way that He empowered Elijah, He empowers Elisha, why wouldn't we think He would want to continue empowering His people to bring the gospel to the world? He does this. He dwells within. But He also pours out as the oil here is poured out. But listen, there's something evident in verse 6 that I think we should see. The moment the widow stopped pouring, the oil stopped flowing. 
as soon as she was no longer pouring out the oil, it stopped. It was done. And I believe the same is true with the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? I mean when we stop pouring out the Spirit in terms of ministry, when we stop pouring out what God has given us in terms of witnessing and service, the flow of the Holy Spirit will stop in our lives as well. When we stand still and think, I'm just going to take it in and enjoy the power, God says, you've had enough. That's enough oil for the day. It is only in the acts of service and ministry and witnessing, the outflowing of the Spirit, that God is continuing to pour in the Spirit. He will pour in as long as we pour out. And I think the example here is just a beautiful one that once she stopped pouring out, the oil stopped. A problem where we can kind of get gummed up in the church is when we take it in and take it in and take it in for ourselves, for our experience, and for our glory. And that's the point where the Lord says... That's not why I'm giving you my spirit. I will pour into you as you pour out. The point of the pouring is ministry. And by the way, here's an example of that, verse 8. There came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman. Note this, the word prominent there is gadol in the Hebrew. Gadol, if you want to write that down, it's just G-A-D-O-L. Gadol means a great woman. And this word greatness is used in many ways in the scripture, but it has a tendency to lean towards spiritual greatness, and she was spiritually great. Watch. She persuaded Elisha to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by this place, Shunim, that he turned in there to eat food. She always provided for him when he came by. Verse 9, she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let's make a little walled-up chamber a walled upper chamber and let's set a bed for him there and a table and a chair with a lampstand and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there and so on the flat roof of their house they built an extra room for Elisha so that they had a place for him to stop and rest his feet in addition to eat verse 11 one day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and he rested he rested this woman is Gadol she's great Ladies especially, listen, but guys, we need to hear this too. I think there's something here especially, though, for our, for our women. A principle of something that is highly, highly valued in Scripture. If you're wondering tonight, how can I be a more godly woman? How can I be a woman who the Lord looks at and says, she's just great. I just love her. How do I go about that? If you want to follow the pattern of the Shunammite Shunamite, Shunamite woman... Romans 12, verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lacking behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and listen, this is so often looked over in the church, practicing hospitality. Hospitality. The Shunammite woman is unwittingly a perfect example of hospitality and how valuable it truly is to the Lord how much he looks on simple hospitality opening your house and bringing someone in and providing them a meal God says that is great oh it's not healing the masses it's not raising the dead it's just providing soup God says that is just great I love when my people do this by the way, the Greek word for hospitality is interesting to me. It's philonexia. And philonexia literally means a lover of strangers. 
A hospitable person is someone who loves strangers. A hospitable person is the one on Sunday morning in the barn who stands there watching the door for someone they don't know and makes a beeline to them to make sure they feel welcome. See, most of us, we have a tendency to look for who we know. Oh, he's there. Oh, she's there. I'm going to talk to my friends. I want to hang out, you know. Philonexia, a hospitable heart, is one who's looking for someone that's kind of wandering in. Boy, it really is a barn. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. They're new. They're feeling a little bit out of place. Maybe a little awkward because, boy, everyone else here must know each other, but I'm the only one who doesn't. And it's the Joe Phillips among us. We can talk about it because he's not here tonight. But it's the Joes who are keeping an eye open. Who do I not know? I don't know that person. I'm going to introduce myself. And if you've ever done that and found out that you did know that person and they've been going to the bridge for two years like you and you've never met them before, you know, so be it. So be it. Love strangers even if you should know them and you realize you don't. Be a lover of strangers. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says, Don't neglect to show philonexia, hospitality, to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that is not a metaphor, gang. That's amazing. Some have been hospitable to someone. They've come, had a meal, and left. And you had no idea, but it was an angel. Oh, come on, Rick. You really believe that? Well, the Bible says it. And remember, I'm just dumb enough to have to take it literally. I I got to, because I can't figure it out metaphorically. It's just too big for me. You entertain angels sometimes. So there are angels walking around among us here on the earth? Yeah, apparently. And sometimes they get hungry, so feed them. Take care of them. Be hospitable. Hospitality expresses nothing less than greatness in the eyes of God. Why? Because it's love. Because it expresses probably one of the highest levels of love. Not love for someone who knows you who can return the favor. Love for someone who doesn't know you. Love for someone who doesn't have a clue who you are. Hospitality says, I'm in love with the love of Jesus. I love you before I know you. The Bible tells us that's a more excellent way than all the spiritual gifts combined. So I encourage you to develop hospitality radar. That especially when we're gathered as a fellowship, that you've got the radar up. And you're looking, you're seeing, man, when Rick on Sunday morning says, hey, say hi to someone, welcome them to the bridge, that you're looking around, finding the person that looks like they're not sure they're welcome. That looks like they're not sure they fit. And you're saying, that's the person that I'm going to love today. That's the person I'm going to invite out to lunch. Now I warn you, you might find yourself at lunch going, why did I ever ask this person out to lunch? But you know you're doing it for the Father. You know? It's a love thing. Let's continue on. Verse 12. So then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Elisha said to Gehazi, call this Shunammite, this woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, now say to her, behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? In other words, can I find a way to bless you in a real special way? Well, she answered, I live among my own people. What does that mean? It means, no, I don't need anything. I'm content. I'm happy. I'm my friends and my family. That's, that's all I need here. Again, she's a great woman. So he said to her, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly, she has no son. And her husband is old. And so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord. Oh, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Which is another way of saying, no, are you kidding? Really? No, don't, don't get my hopes up here. You're telling me I get to have a baby? Wonderful. 
And so verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son at that season next year, just as Elisha had said to her. And so the second miracle here is the provision of life. And the provision of oil. And now we have a provision of life. He just wants to bless her. And so she receives something she didn't dare hope for. She receives a son. Now it's important because her husband's old and because her husband's aging, when she loses him, she has nothing. A woman in Israel with no husband, no sons, has no inheritance. And so she would be alone in the world. And so not only is he providing her the joy of an infant son, but he's providing a future for her. An inheritance. Someone to care for her when she, after he grows up. But the story doesn't end there. The boy starts to grow up and tragedy strikes. Verse, 13, verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and died. Heat stroke, I'm assuming. But this child given by God, this child given by the prophet, is now dead. She's got to be thinking... That's not how this was supposed to go. That cannot possibly be God's will for my life. Verse 21, she went up. Watch her faith here, gang. She laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. What do we need a prophet around here for? And she said, It will be well. Just don't worry about it. Let me go. Verse 24, Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward, and do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there's the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Well, it wasn't well. So why did she say it was? Because she doesn't want to talk to Gehazi. She wants to get right past him, straight on up to Elisha. She's on the move here, getting to the man who she believes can help her. Verse 27, she came to the man of God, to the hill. And she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi, he came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me. And has not told me. See, Elisha, like any prophet, is still dependent on the Lord to tell him what's going on. And then she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? What's going on here? I know you didn't, in other words, give me a son so that he could be taken from me like this. Well, then he said to Gehazi, and he's obviously figuring it out now, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. If anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. Oh, cool. Staff miracle. Maybe he had a staff infection. I don't know. We're going to see this. Sorry. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he rose and followed her. So now we've got Elisha and the mom walking along, heading back the direction. Gehazi's running at top speed with the staff to land on the faces. Boy, you know what Gehazi's got to be thinking. I get to do the miracle. This is going to be awesome. Power. Powerful staff. I got it. I'm going to go lay it on his face. So he goes. Passed on before them. Verse 31. Laid the staff on the lad's face. And there was no sound or response. What weird. So he returned to meet him and he told him, The lad has not awakened. And when Elisha came in, now hold on for a second. Why? 
why would he do this? Why would Elisha send Gehazi ahead with his staff to lay the staff on him? You know, obviously we're all thinking the healing's going to happen here, and it doesn't. Was Elisha just wrong? Did he get ahead of the Lord? I think Elisha's teaching a lesson here that's incredibly important to understand. I'm making an educated guess. I believe Elisha is teaching his servant Gehazi something valuable. Along with the Shunammite woman and anyone else who might hear about this, that the working of miracles wasn't a thing of talisman and parlor tricks. It wasn't like lucky rabbit's foot stuff. It was only through faith and through prayer that this child could possibly be restored to life. Elisha is elevating intercession over superstition. Go ahead and take the rod. Go ahead. Take the staff. Lay it on him. You're going to see that that does nothing. But watch what happens. He entered and shut the door, verse 33, behind both of them. The lad, verse 32, was dead and laid on his bed. Well, he prayed to the Lord. Verse 34, he went up and lay on the child. He put his mouth on the mouth, on his mouth, and his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself on him. You remember Elijah doing the same thing? So Elisha is well trained by Elijah. He stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. God is beginning to respond. It's not instantaneous, but he's beginning to respond. Well, then he returned and walked in the house once, back and forth. And he went up and stretched himself on him. So a second time, and the lad sneezed seven times. Don't know if it got on Elisha. Probably not important. (laughs) Sneezed seven times, and the lad opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and he said, call this Shunammite. And so he called her. And when she came into him, he said, take up your son. Well, she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son, probably in her arms, and she went out. And Elisha has just done an amazing thing. We now see not only the provision of oil and the provision of life, but a provision of restored life. Now understand this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of the faithful. It's a great hall of faith. You go through that. All the named people throughout there who showed great faith in Old Testament times. And this woman is listed, though not by name. Hebrews 11.35 says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. There are only two women listed in all of the Old Testament who received back their dead by resurrection. The widow of Zarephath by Elijah back in 1 Kings 17 and the Shunammite woman by Elisha here in in 2 Kings chapter 4. What did it take for the resurrection to happen? It took faith. It took prayer. I think about Jesus saying, you know, this kind just comes out by prayer and fasting. This doesn't come out because you necessarily are walking with the power gift of the Holy Spirit, though that's important. This doesn't come out because you have had the ability maybe in the past to heal someone or to do something magnificent. This comes out, Jesus says, in talking about the casting out of demons. He said, this one just needed prayer and fasting. It needed some time. For a man of God to call out to God. That's what Elisha is doing. And that's the lesson we learn here. Sometimes it's not just because I want it to happen. Sometimes the Lord is waiting to see how far I'm going to press into prayer. Am I willing really to take... Am I really even willing to look silly? I'm stretched out on top of the boy, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. Again, it's a little weird. Got a laugh, especially from Heather Gilmore, when I mentioned a few weeks ago about Elijah praying in the birthing position and saying, Can you imagine Les doing that on a Sunday morning? I think we'd all look at Les a little differently. 
shot up here. I, I'm, I'm not going to take that any further, but... <laughs> Thank you. How, how far are you willing to go? How far in, in faith and prayer, are we willing to go to trust God? sad thing about Americans is we're not really willing to go very far because it might make us look foolish it might be a little weird it might be outside our comfort zone and yet dang if it is in scripture embrace it if you see the example here God I believe can call us to this so a provision of oil a provision of life a provision now of restored life and by the way this woman was not only great because of her hospitality she was an incredible woman of faith if you go back and read that whole story again look at what she did she would not accept the death of her son she believed in resurrection she went after Elijah he, she knew he was dead she laid him on the bed and she goes and calls the servant and she goes to find Elisha because she believed in resurrection and belief in resurrection is vital to receiving resurrection for you and for me. If you don't believe in resurrection, you're going to have a hard time receiving resurrection in your own life, in your own body. Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die and in those two statements he's talking about those who die in Christ and those who live and are alive at the time of the rapture because there are going to be some who never taste death and then Jesus says do you believe this do you believe it really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ really believe that God resurrects from the dead the Shunammite woman believes it the widow of Zarephath believes it those two examples are the only two we have in the Old Testament of women receiving back their dead but they believed it which is why they were able to receive it and Paul says in Romans 10.9 it's absolutely vital gang if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Because belief in resurrection is vital to receiving resurrection. Do you believe it? you got to believe it to receive it. Verse 38, and we'll finish up here. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, fourth, fourth miracle here, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put a large pot put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets well then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from it from, uh, gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and he came and he sliced them into the pot of stew for they did not know what they were <laughs> that's always a good way to cook something I have no idea what this is got some gourds outside let's cook it up and eat it <laughs> so they poured it out for the men to eat and as they were eating it of the stew they cried out and said oh man of God there's death in the pot <laughs> and they were unable to eat bitter nasty obviously poisonous stew but he said well now bring meal and he threw it into the pot and said pour it out for the people that they may eat and there was no harm in the pot that's amazing so okay, another miracle, but it doesn't stop there. A man brought from came from Baal Shalishah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack, and he said, Elisha said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What? Well I said this before a hundred men. He said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Does that remind you of something? 
God repeats certain miracles here. Jesus repeated certain miracles to make it absolutely evident of the Spirit of God active and alive in him that he was God in the flesh. In Mark chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus is talking to his apostles about these two fantastic feedings. The feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. Two separate times where Jesus fed large numbers of people and there was leftovers. And he says to his apostles, he says, Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. Well, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And Jesus was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? Do you not yet understand what? What Jesus was trying to teach his apostles is it wasn't about the power of the miracles. That wasn't the point of the feeding. It was about the presence of the Savior. Jesus is saying, I'm here. All these miracles and all the things that you're seeing, they're not for the sake of the miracles. They're so that you will know who I am. So that you will recognize I am right here in your presence. Jesus is saying, my presence is your provision. The feeding, I can feed anybody. That's nothing. It's no small thing. It's, just, it's, just, it's a trifle. I can take care of your needs. I can provide. But the issue is, I am here. I am your provision. Gang, in these four miracles of Elisha, whether it's life in the first place, or the oil of the Spirit poured into and onto our lives, or our coming resurrection, or even the simple provision of daily bread, what Jesus wants us to know and remember is His presence is our provision. It's the one thing I need more than anything else in my life. More than breakfast in the morning, I need to wake up to Jesus. More than the life that I want to live and the things I want to do, I need to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. More than even the power and the oil of His Spirit. He gives us His Spirit. Why? So that we can be aware of His presence. Not so that we can be supermen and women. It's because He wants us to know, I am here with you. Our coming resurrection is so that we will be put into glorified bodies to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Again, he's the point. Even the simple hamburger that I might have for lunch tomorrow is a reminder to me of His presence. I am here with you. And His presence is my greatest provision. We talked about provision a couple weeks ago. And how the Lord has promised to take care of every one of our needs. We don't need to worry when we sit down to do the bills or when we go to the grocery store or when we're filling up the tank at the gas station. We don't have to worry about it. God will take care of our needs. But we miss the point if we're so focused on the provisionary things of the flesh that the presence of Jesus Christ is my greatest provision. That's what I need. And if I have to go three or four days without food, but I'm in the presence of Jesus Christ, amen, that's what I need. It was brought up at our elders' meeting. What do you do with people in the third world who follow God's prescription of tithing in Malachi chapter 3 and are still impoverished? You know what I believe the answer is? They find themselves in the presence of Jesus even more so because of the faithfulness of their giving. It's the presence that is our provision. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom 
We are, are all things and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through Him. His presence is my provision. Let's pray. Dan, come on up. Lord Jesus, I am convinced you are all we need. And as much, Lord, as you tell us, you're going to take care of everything. And you're going to provide completely. Please don't let us miss the beauty of our relationship with you. And the wonder of getting to walk with you. And what I take out, Lord, of Elisha's miracles is not what a wonderful man he is, but how full of the presence of your Spirit he is. Here's a guy who walked with you, Lord. I want to be that way. I want that double portion. The double portion of inheritance that you promised to us. You adopt us into into your family, Lord Jesus. And give us the double portion of your presence. Father, how divine that truly is. Lord, as we sing this final song, as we go out of here tonight, fill us up with a sense of your holy presence. In Jesus we pray. Amen.